Father, we are grateful to sit before your word. We ask for hearts to receive it. We know that we have a tendency to wonder and to think about everything other than what you would have to say to us. So, Lord, we want wisdom, not, not just earthly wisdom, but heavenly wisdom that we might see and treasure all that you have given us. In Christ's name, amen. So at the heart of today, our study, is uh, the Last Supper. And you will see that as we move through, of course. And it's in the heart of the section of scriptures that we are looking at. You'll also see this preparation for Passover, the Passover itself, what you would call the institution of communion or the Lord's Supper, and then Jesus' statement about his disciples falling away. So there's a lot of things going on there, but it's helpful to see them together and understand what's going on as we move forward. I want to start with a quote uh, that might be helpful for you as you think about this section. It says, The self-sacrifice of Jesus in the Last Supper contrasts dramatically with the infidelity of the disciples. It is, in other words, not the worthy for whom Jesus lays down his life, but precisely for the unworthy, even the cowardly and unfaithful followers. And so it's just important that we understand that because we, we think about this wonderful sacrifice and you might say, oh, he made a wonderful sacrifice because these others are making wonderful sacrifices. But it's not the way that you see it here. And we understand that and we can grasp that. So the fact that you are prone to fear and at the same time overconfidence is not the greatest problem that you have. I mean, that is a problem. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, recently, I've thought there are a few people I've watched, and I think like when they are doing good in their own mind, it's when they're like the most dangerous. You know, you're like ah. So that's always a bad thing, right? But the greatest problem is that in your failure, like if you find yourself in this broken state, if you fail to return to the one who came to save you, in spite of all your mess-ups, in spite of those ways that you do wrong, you know? That, that's the greatest failure of all, to not return to the one who, knowing your fickleness, you know, knowing the way you're fickle, and he still lays down his life for you. So we're looking at, again, the Last Supper's at the heart of this, but we'll look at the preparation and just think about it for a moment. Um, when you see the two disciples sent, you've seen that before, where they went to get the cult, but you also see it where he sends them two by two to go and speak and share the gospel. That's something that we see him uh, do, and so that's regular occurrence that you'll see in the, the life of Jesus. There are a lot of terms that are very closely tied together in 11, 1 and 2 and 14, 13, so you kind of see this uh, together, but one of the things that you see about it is, is that Jesus perfectly orders his plans. That, that's, that's a thing that you need to understand. It's not magic. It's a display of his power. You, you can see that he reigns over all of the activities of men. And we see this in these specific circumstances. He's not like, it's not outside of his control. It's like perfectly ordered. And he, he follows that all the way through. So the interesting thing about that is that it makes him not afraid in the way where he's worried, like, to, can we get it all done? You know, there's a total uh, rest there, which is something we rarely ever experience, even though we know that God's plans are ordered. 
and he is ordering his, the work in our lives, we have a tendency not to rest in that. So you look at verse 12. It's the first day of unleavened bread. When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Um, one author noted this way, and I just think it's helpful. The first day of the, uh, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread technically began at sundown when the Passover uh, kind of began, and, and it would um, continue through, through sunset and lasted into midnight and when all of that was celebrated. But Mark seems to start maybe kind of picking up some of the, the uh, I guess you could say, the Greek culture, and he would start on Thursday, and he lays this out in a way where it's like the time when they were like sacrificing the animals, when that began, like he uh, began his kind of statement here. And so that might be helpful. And I do want to remind you, like this is a huge undertaking. Like uh, in 66 AD, there's, a, there's a, a great historian at that time. He spoke about this, and he said there were 255,000 lambs slaughtered the temple when it was dedicated and so tons of people would come though at Passover I mean multiple I mean it's just thousands upon thousands the, the, the city would be filled with people and in my mind finding a place at this time seems like overwhelming to think about it but Jesus is the one presiding over all of this and he is orchestrating it and he is doing um, what he uh, has planned to do and it's it's flawless it's perfect it's perfectly ordered um and so you look at verse 13 and 14. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and look for someone, a, a man carrying water. And I've read this week that often like women would carry water or other people, but seeing a man there carrying water would kind of be out of the ordinary, which might have helped them in some way and stands out to you that he has got a plan that is perfectly put together. And then he says, when you show up, just say the teacher says, where is the guest room? And it's, it's almost as if like, Again, that everything is orchestrated by God and he is working out his plans. And so this is something that you want to see. And these events are both predicted by Jesus and he is in control of them. And so we want to see that because we don't ever want to think like any of this happened to him and he was not aware or ready for it. Uh, he, he planned it. So that's helpful to know. And verse 15 and 16 this guy's going to show you a larger room. It's going to be furnished and ready, and it's all going to be set up. And so it's, it's exactly as it's supposed to be. And actually, if you read a little bit of history about that, uh, the people were to have, if you had an extra room, you were to have it prepared for guests who were going to celebrate Passover, and that is what takes place here. And so the picture here, though, is Jesus, at this time, when he's celebrating Passover, a lamb will be sacrificed, and we know that like it is pointing to, and he's using this to express that he is the lamb. He is the, the final one. He is the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. It's, it's pointing to the fact that he is ushering in a new day. He's inaugurating a new covenant. He is bringing all of this to pass. And so this old order of things where animals are going to uh, die now he is going to be the great sacrifice that will be the final and the true and the one that all others pointed to and so we have the preparation and then you have uh, the sacrifice itself as we think about it in that way and some of the I don't know the stubbornness of the disciples you might say I want you to look at something with me real quick look at verses 17 to 21 and you see betrayal who are the people that are the 
who are the betrayers? It's, it's, there's a betrayal by the disciples. It's kind of within the midst of them. And then if you look at verses 27 through 31, you see what one noted as a defection of the disciples. So at the front end and then the back end, you have these, um, you could say, these bookends that are like, man, these people are going to betray him. There's going to be this great like uh, rejection of Jesus in a really powerful way. But in the center of that is the Last Supper. So it's almost like you would be saying something like, um, at the heart of this, in the midst of this, these people rejecting uh, Jesus and, and, and running away from him and, and not following him and staying with him, he's still willingly offering himself to them. Edwards said, in the present construction, the self-sacrifice of Jesus in the Last Supper contrasts dramatically with the infidelity of the disciples. It is, in other words, now listen to this, you ready? Not the worthy for whom Jesus lays down his life. Not the worthy, but precisely for the unworthy, even cowardly and unfaithful followers. So that's, I mean, that's important to understand that. It is not the worthy. So if you were maybe coming here today and you really do think like you've done it all right and you, you can see everybody else's wrongs, and that, it's not, that's great. It, it, it sounds good when you think really high of yourself as you look in the mirror every day, speak positive things into the universe about how wonderful you are. But the reality is that's not what discipleship is like. Discipleship is the disciples, and as we see throughout church history, the disciples are not people where you say, oh, look how worthy they are, but it's those who are unworthy that are coming and experiencing this great, powerful salvation. And so if you think you're worthy, you are probably not following our Lord. You know, so anyway. Okay, so I think it's important to see that. And then what another thing that was noted is this. This section helps you understand in a very powerful way, maybe in this summary, this way, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you can just chalk that up, put that down, and uh, it will help you understand these things. One other quote that I thought you know, was just helpful. You remember the woman that anoints Jesus' body last week? Remember that? For burial, at the Last Supper, Jesus gives his body for sinners. It's a powerful deal to see and understand. So, we see this betrayal that's going to take place in the evening. He came, um, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And so we see him doing that. He's, he's bringing them, and there, there are probably others there. All the information is not there, but he's bringing them together. And they are, um, like I said, there's probably others at the feast here. And as they come together, he's going to um, help them understand a few things. And it says in verse 18, And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, so they're into the meal, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. This is not, again, this is normally like a reflection on uh, being rescued and uh, it's kind of a time of, of great celebration. And then he speaks into that where, you know, it almost be like a Christmas dinner or something. And you're like, hey, I have to share something with everybody. And everybody's like, 
you know, like trying to swallow their food, you know, because what, you know, what are you saying, you know? But he says, one of you will betray me. And so it is a solemn kind of event. And by the way, just as a thing from the Lord's Supper, some people would say the Lord's Supper, therefore, is always solemn. And, and I'll, when we get to the end, if I remember, I will express to you, like, it's both solemn and a thing to rejoice in. I think there's a place for both. And so if you're one of those, like, with a frown on your face every time you think about the Lord's Supper, I think you're wrong. But if you're always, like, laughing your head off, I think you're wrong, too. I think there is a place for both because we're going to see that, like I said, if I remember. You'll see it in the text. If you don't, you can kind of just go back and read it, and you'll see that. So um, as a result... Um, I think what happens then is there's this soul searching that takes place. And that's a big deal. You're saying, like, what should that lead them to do? If somebody's going to betray him, there's kind of this soul searching picture. In verse 19, they begin to be sorrowful and to say to him, uh, to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? It, the picture here is they are sorrowful or grieving. And it, almost in a protest, one by one, surely not I. You know, that, that's kind of the idea. Surely it's not, it's not I that's doing that, that would do that. Now, here's the thing. There are more people than just the 12 there. Because notice what happens. He said to them, it is one of the 12. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Like one of the closest one, like the closest ones. So again, if you were like, man, if there was somebody close to Jesus here this morning, I'm sure I would be the closest. If that's in your mind right now, you see what he's saying? Like those like that are so near me, spent three years with me, one of them. It's kind of a clarifying statement and it narrows the focus. It's almost like the rest of you can go. These twelve, one of you. It's kind of the picture that you would say. But what's interesting is there really is a traitor in a more formal sense, Judas, which we know. He's going to be, betray him, but by dawn, all the disciples will betray him. Maybe not for like what we would say greed, and you're going to like say, hey, turn him over and have him crucified. But they're going to betray him because they're weak, because they're fearful, because they're cowards. All of them saying, surely not I will be like, clearly see, oh man, yes, I, I'm, I'm among those. I'm among those. So how would you think you would fare? How would you fare? Let me ask you this. If you think, you would be saying, surely, I, I would do that. I, I can see that. If you saw that, maybe another question might be, then how would you expect Jesus to treat you? What, what would you expect him to do? Maybe further question. How do you treat those whom you consider to be not worthy of your generosity? That's a good community group question, don't you think? Right? Maybe we'll put, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just playing with y'all. It's getting serious, so I had to throw something a little lighter. Okay. But I want you to think for a moment. 1 Thessalonians 5. We're doing that as a fighter verse, I think, this next week. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, 
Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. If you see yourself in this picture and you can say, I know, I, I can see where I would be standing among the disciples, then the response to that would be overwhelmed by the gratitude of Christ doing the work that he has done for you, and as a result, then, wanting to just give that to others, give that back to others. If you're not, like, I think you need to be considering that this morning. Now, but at the end of the day, there is one that is going to betray him in the most formal sense, who John calls, in the Gospel of John, a devil. One who will not return. He will not return with the disciples. He's not a part of them. He went out from them because he was not really of them. They are going to make bad decisions. They are going to be weak, but they are not going to completely sell out and walk away forever. Verse 21, For the Son of Man goes out as is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is destroyed. It would have been better for that man to have not been born. Jesus is um, identifying himself as a suffering servant, which again has always been a struggle for them. They saw him as the Son of Man. They did not see him as a suffering servant. But again, he's helping us remind, or helping remind us that he has come to lay down his life for us. Now, another thing that you would have to see, and I think it's important to see here, when you're looking at it and you're studying it out, is when you're seeing this, I think you say, well, I mean, is this the plan? How do you deal with the fact that God is like orchestrating this plan and yet this man is making his plans to turn away from Jesus in this way? I think it's helpful just to say, um, and this is a way again, I'll read a quote to you because I think it was helpful the way this guy said it. Thus Jesus goes in accordance with God's predetermined will but the betrayer is not thereby exonerated of guilt. Neither Jesus nor Judas is an instrument of blind faith or a pawn of divine strategy. So you're just saying, I think when we're looking at that, we're saying like, Judas is doing what he wants to do, and yet it perfectly fits within the will of God. Somebody asked me about that today, and one of the best ways I've heard about it is like, if uh, you think about like the, the play uh, Julius Caesar and the playwright, He's writing out the plan while at the same time um, Brutus is choosing to stab Julius Caesar. It's, so if you're looking at it from this, this vantage point, you're saying, yeah, I saw he got mad at him, he stabbed him. But up here you're like realizing that he has written the plan. And I think that's how we have to read things and understand them. That God is orchestrating his plan. Jesus is showing us that he's doing that. Everything he's told you, what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, it is in the plan of God. It's in his decree from before the foundation of the world that he would save a people for himself through his son. All that's there. And yet the person that does this grievous thing is held accountable. So then we move to the last supper. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this my body. You know, this is a very short thing. It's not, you, you know, when you're looking at the Last Supper, you think, well, there, can there be more said? And there's not a lot said, it, but it has very powerful symbolic elements of Passover. 
He's going to help you understand. He's going to institute this thing. It's going to change things. We're going to go from thinking about a lamb and thinking about the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. But it is very short when he speaks of it. But, it, but when you do, when you look at it, you say, this helps us understand our fellowship with Christ, our continuation with Him, our relationship with Him. Every week when we do that, it's a reminder that His body was broken so that we, by virtue of our relationship with Him, get to experience the benefits of His death, of Him laying down His life. Those are uh, we, uh, for us to get to experience and understand. It is, um, it, it is an important thing to see. And so there's something to, to understand. This bread is broken. This, this, uh, this wine is poured out. And in both cases, you understand that this is what God is doing. Christ has come to reconcile us to himself and to God through his sacrificial death. You'll notice like these verbs here, eat, take, bless, break, give, say, take. It's like it's, it's showing this gracious activity where he's graciously allowing you to experience these things. He's willingly giving himself to you. Take my body, my person, my whole being. Take all of me. And it's not really, um, if you remember in the first, uh, the old covenant, under Mo, the Mosaic covenant, the blood was spattered on the people. In this place, it's like they're drinking it in. They're taking it in. It's showing a union of a much higher level. It's not just an exterior kind of connection. It's interior. And he is bringing you in to him. It's conveying this whole thing of like all of the benefits, this union is so deep and intertwined that we will never be separated. That's the picture. Verse 23, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank it. And so it's just important. All of them drank. That, that's, that's one of the things of, of the, the picture here. It's kind of helping you see they all drink. Now we're saying like they're getting the benefits of this, the glorious benefits of being in uh, sorry united to Jesus. They're all going to drink. They're all going to swear allegiance to him. They're going to all fall away in this story, and they'll all flee. All, all, all that's going to happen. But it's it's interesting. What it does is it helps you that to understand this first last supper is not much different than this one that we're going to enjoy in a few in a minute. It's filled with a bunch of cowards. It just is. And the table, as Edward says, is a table not of merit, but of grace. When we're saying the body of Christ was broken, the blood shed, we are not saying your body, like me and you, but his body. So that's a massive thing. You understand this is a grace-based thing. It's what makes Christianity distinct from anything else. We are not cutting ourselves. We are not doing things to try to make ourselves acceptable. He was accepted. And therefore, we are accepted. That's what we're saying. That's why the Scripture says, we are accepted in the Beloved, in the Beloved Son, who gave His life for us. And He said to them, this is my body, uh, sorry, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. It's like life is in the blood in the Old Testament. And I think it's important to see that. It, it's always instituted through blood, through a sacrifice. It was always a sacrifice of an animal, and now it's the sacrifice of the Son of God, the true sacrifice. 
the sacrifice that was the sacrifice of all sacrifices. The new covenant is sealed by Jesus' blood. And it's not just thrown on again, but it's drunk in. And I think we need to be reminded of that. Some wonderful thing in the midst. Remember, when we're thinking about this, there's this preparation and then this, this explanation of these people are they're going to move away from him. They're going to be frightened. And then you're going to see in the center of that Jesus like giving himself for them. And then you see again, they're going to be frightened. They're going to move away. And so now you just kind of, I think it's important to see this. I told you I would remind you of it. Look at verse 25 and 26. So it's both somber and celebratory. You ready? Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The important thing to see, I really do think, at the heart of that is this. You celebrate this because it is the most exciting thing that you could ever hear. That you could be reconciled to God. That you could have a relationship with Him knowing you're a sinner. But that there's a way for you. There, there was a sacrifice that was made so that God could be satisfied with us. He was satisfied with Christ's uh, sacrifice and therefore He can be right with us. We can be in good standing with Him. So there's a celebratory moment there. So I think that you have like a somber and celebratory thing and we need to embody both of those. Now, Verse 27 to 31, we come back and we're like, oh, let's look at the people here. We leave Jesus and what he's done. Let's look at these people. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There's a lot of hope here, but there is a lot. It's frightening to them to hear these words. The idea of falling away is you'll be caused to stumble. Jesus warned the disciples all throughout this stuff, guard, guard yourself, like think clearly, be careful, watch out, be prepared. You know, it's like uh, there's going to be, you're going to trip. You're going to fall. You're going to crumble here. You understand you're going to crumble under the pressure. Get ready, be prepared. Well, they come to this final hour and they will not. They will be seen as like, and really, that's, that's sometimes when we think about things, when we really are, are, are thinking about it, it's not the sins that we, pre, it's not like premeditated sins. I don't always sit around thinking about how I can sin. Do you? You just look up and go, goodness gracious, like what happened? I was in the moment, so stirred up, it was at a fever pitch, and I like lost it. And I hurt people in my family, and I tore down a relationship. People do that. You do that. You do that. I do that. And so you have to understand, like, most of your sinning has a lot to do with not intending to do so, but rather, like, facing a situation you did not expect and losing it. That's how it goes, over and over. Jesus is quoting this this passage about the shepherd is in Zechariah 13 7 and in its original context it refers to the murder of the end time shepherd which is who he is and they will scatter but after that I will be raised up there's this hopeful thing here like it's not over it's about to get ugly you're ugly like what you've done is ugly but that's not the end of the story because I'm going to die for you but I'm also going to be resurrected for you 
you'll experience all the benefits of it. And so, the kingdom of God that Jesus brings and embodies cannot be scuttled by human failure. Like God's plans will come to pass. His kingdom will be forever. He who first called the apostolic band at the Sea of Galilee will again call and reestablish them at the Sea of Galilee. He's restoring all of these things. He's going to reconstitute the people of God, and it will be on display in beautiful ways. Now, verse 29 through 31, we have Peter stepping up in his arrogant self as a young man saying, if they all go, I won't go. Do you see that? They all fall away, not me. I'll stand. Jesus interprets Peter's mock heroics or attempts to with the, with the, the reality <clears throat> today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows, you will fall away three times. You have three opportunities. You will mess it up three times. And so I think it's important to see that and understand that. It's, um, when, when you're looking at these temptations and struggles and opportunities and all of that stuff, they're going to come under that pressure and they are all going to make the wrong decision. They just will. And it's not just that Peter is boasting about not falling away. All the others were saying the same. That's what you see in John 11. They all think, not me, not me, not me, not me. I, I would never, I would never do that. And so these people are all in the same kind of place. And I think it's important for us to understand that. So when you're thinking about this text and you look at it and you think about taking the Lord's Supper every week, week after week, I think it's always important to say, Lord, allow me to see the bookends around the, the Last Supper. Let me understand the situation. Y'all show back up with me real quick. Some of you spend a lot of time thinking about how bad our world is because of the wicked people leading it, because of like the people that you know out there that are doing this and doing that. You spend a lot of time, a lot of mental energy thinking about um, the, the people that you can look at on a television or see in a stream room and be like, they're just... Those are all wicked, bad people. I mean, they're bad, you know. And, and they are many times. But the sin in this story is the sin of those who are in God's vineyard, of his own disciples, of Peter and James, of people like you and me. That's the, that's the real thing that he was talking about. Around this wonderful offering of himself are these people that are not very wonderful but they're the people in church that think really highly of themselves that think they're really strong that boast of how how much they do and how much they've done we take the lord's supper every week as a remember a remembrance and we remember not only what jesus did but what we have done that's what we do. We remind ourselves of those things and we think of the glorious wonder of Christ's work on our behalf. Edwards noted, despite the cowardice and treachery of the disciples, despite Jesus' impending agony on the cross, the final word of the Last Supper is the expectation of the coming kingdom of God. It's going to get really dark 
They're going to have dark nights of their soul. Jesus is going to have a dark night of the soul. But when it's all said and done, he's coming out of that grave. And he's going to bring them back together. That ought to bring, make your heart sing. That should make you sing. Now, Anna told me a story, reminded me of a story that I've read before, but it's been a while. And I want to read this to you because I think it is helpful uh, to understand. I'm just going to read some quotes from this story, especially in light of uh, kind of the way the disciples were and um, the glorious things that Jesus did for them in spite of them. In The Horse and His Boy, written by C.S. Lewis, this young boy named Shasta and his horse Bree, along with another horse and rider, were being chased across a field by a lion. When the other rider was attacked, Shasta jumped off to fight the lion, and the mighty warhorse was so afraid he didn't even slow down. Later, the horse would be helped through his folly. And I want you to hear kind of that. He speaks to Shasta, the one that was riding him. He said, I'm so ashamed of myself. I think he was actually turned facing a wall away from him. He couldn't even turn around and look. He said, I'm so ashamed of myself. I'm I was... I'm just as frightened as a common dumb horse. I don't feel like a talking horse at all. I don't mind swords and lances and arrows, but I can't bear those creatures. He continued, I who called myself a war horse and boasted of a hundred fights to be beaten by a little human boy, a child, a mere foal, who had never held a sword nor had any good nurture or example in this life. Then a wise man spoke to him. He said, My good horse... You've lost nothing but your self-conceit. If you are really as humbled as you sounded a minute ago, you must learn to listen to sense. You're not quite the great horse you had come to think from living among poor dumb horses. The disciples needed to learn the same story, same thought as this horse. What about you? Do you find yourself in the same place? You may be asking, is it I? I can answer for you. It is you. And it's me. And we need to come to the Lord's table today with a broken and contrite heart, remembering that our only hope in this life and the one to come is found in a crucified Savior who rescues the weak, fearful, and proud and will bring them to glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that confronts and convicts and comforts may we be people who are very aware of how far we have fallen and how far our Lord and Savior went to rescue us. May we rejoice in that rescue and remind one another of it. May the way that we treat our family, our friends, our co-workers in this life embody a view of the one who laid down his life when we did not deserve it knowing that we would do, do things that would so damage his name, his renown, and yet he did it anyway. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.